Hallelujah. Jesus, we affirm with this song that your name is above all names. There is no name higher. There is no one beside you. And before your name, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. We thank you that this name, Lord, evident in history, was prophesied of old when we see even back to the prophets. Isaiah, whose words we will consider today, declaring of the Messiah to come, of the great name to come, that his name is not just great in one way or another, but in all ways. That he would be wonderful, counselor, almighty God, prince of peace, mighty God, and Lord of the increase of your government, there will be no end. We are proof of this today. You have incorporated us into your government as it were, every saint in this room. We now confess humble submission before you, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our ruler, our sovereign. And we pray that you would continue to subdue your enemies and bring into subjection your people, calling the elect from the far corners of history as it were, until you glean for yourself, Lord, a sufficient number to populate the realms of glory, singing with those who've gone before and the celestial beings around your throne, holy, holy, holy is the lamb that was slain. May his name be exalted. May his name be glorified. Lord, I pray as we turn now to your scriptures to see areas of your work in history, I pray that our hearts would be moved to confession of this truth, to conviction, to a life of faith and obedience, and to praise and to glory, and to make known the name of Christ our Lord. We thank you that your work is from everlasting to everlasting. And we thank you that through your word and your spirit's use of these means this morning, our eyes can be open to behold your glory. I pray that you would do exactly that this day, that you might be glorified in the deeper understanding, the more accurate profession, and the ensuing fruit from your church who stands on Christ as her Lord and Savior, her majestic ruler, her King of kings, her sovereign and her Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great opportunity the Spirit has afforded us today to take note of the Holy Scriptures and to consider them together. Would you do this with me today by turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50? The end of that chapter and the beginning of the next will be our focus today. If you guys could bring up the lights in the back just a little bit more, that would be great. Isaiah 50 verse 10 through Isaiah 51 verse 6 will be our primary passage this morning. The title of this morning's message is Visiting Abram's Altar. Of course, you could say Abraham, visiting Abraham's altar. The aim of this morning's message is to behold the greatness and grace of our God, remembering his covenant exploits. Again, to behold the greatness and grace of our God as we remember his covenant exploits. As you recall, and as we'll revisit in a moment, Abraham built an altar after the Lord appeared to him in Canaan. And there is purposes connected with this altar. And in a sense, my thesis this morning is that Isaiah returns to this altar. That is, he remembers the moment that is significant in his forebearer in the faith, Abraham's life, 
to remember what God has done and to proclaim his work prophesied there and promised there on into the future. This is greatly relevant for us today as we have witnessed more of the fulfillment in our day. And it is also relevant because Christ's work is yet to be accomplished in part in the future as he continues to unfold the extent of his kingdom in history. Would you stand once again out of reverence for God's word today with your Bible open to Isaiah 50 verse 10 and listen as the word of God, the infallible and errant word of the Lord is proclaimed in your hearing today. Isaiah 50 verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Isaiah 51.1. Listen to me, you who, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when, called, when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. Verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <coughs> Isaiah, through this word of prophecy, commands the people's attention. He arrests their attention and calls them to look to the rock from which they were hewn and to the quarry from which they were dug. And in the analogy, you see here that there is a place of origin. There is a substantive beginning. There is a history to their existence as a people in covenant with the Lord. And that history and that existence includes God's call to Abraham, the first of this nation who would be raised up through his seed, to show forth the praises of our God. So in as many words, Isaiah is calling the people back to visiting the altar that Abram, if you will, constructed in the land of Canaan, in the land between, a second altar, in the land between Ai and Bethel. And this refers back to our text from last week, Genesis 12. It is my hope to do several of these sermons in the future here, at least two, I suppose, wherein we look to the Scripture's view of what we are learning in Genesis. 
The significance of Genesis 12 is expounded by Isaiah the prophet in chapters 50 and 51. The significance of Genesis 15 is is expounded several times by Paul, for instance, in the book of Romans, as well as Galatians chapter 3. In these cases, it's as if we can see this concept of visiting the altar that Abraham erected. Genesis 12, 1 through 9 signals a watershed moment so significant in world history that the remaining context of the entire Bible is dedicated to the record of fulfillment and implication, implications of God's covenant promises first revealed to the important or to the significant son, Abram, soon to be Abraham. That is a comment we made last week as we noted the structure of Genesis, the first 11 chapters dedicated to chronicling all of world history and many, many generations. Then the remaining 39 chapters of the same book, Genesis, are dedicated to covering just four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons. Now, but not only this, you could look at the rest of Scripture as a further chronicling of events that affect or are implied uh, in the promises of Abraham that uh, relate to this people that is called forth as Abraham's seed and called forth for a purpose. That is to say, again, Genesis 12 marks a milestone in covenant and world history that changes the calculus of human history, of human future forever. We've noted this last week, even in the words of promise and prophecy that God gave the patriarch himself. Abraham himself was the first to recognize the importance of these events in his life and family line and his acknowledgement and his acknowledgement of the grace and greatness of God moved him to set up altars of commemoration, to remember something, to establish it as a significant moment in the, men, in the minds, in the attention, in the consciousness of yourself and your lineage. This is the idea. Abraham recognized this moment as so significant, he set up altars. These weren't the first two that he built, but in Genesis 12, we've marked two of them as he has gone on this journey, this appointed pilgrimage the Lord has placed him on that coincides with the prophecy of a new land to dwell in. The first of these literal milestones of remembrance was built in Canaan upon the revelation that Abraham, his feet were now standing in the promised land. You remember God told him, I'm going to bring you to a land and I'll show you it on the way, basically. Abraham, presumably, presumably he crosses into Canaan. He has no idea that the place he's standing, when the Lord appears to him uh, there uh, just north, so to speak, of Ai and Bethel, he, he does not realize that he is standing in the land. That is part and parcel of the promise the Lord has given him. But then the Lord appears to him, and upon that appearing, it becomes clear. And so his response is to worship the Lord by building him an, an altar. So this was made known, this promise and this inheritance of Abram's by land promise was made known to him by theophany. Uh, what is a theophany? Do you guys remember from last week? It's a theological term that refers to an appearance of God that we, that human beings, can tangibly see or have some sensory experience with. Theophanies in the Old Testament, uh, we probably best can understand them as pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. And so something like this happens to Abraham. God appears to him. 
And think of one of the more famous theophanies in Scripture. It's helpful. Moses, the burning bush, the hallowed ground. Uh, Certainly an occasion worthy of an altar, is it not? God appears to him as this flaming fire, this flaming bush, a fire which cannot be quenched and needs no fuel. And then there's this attention to his holiness. And Moses responds in fear and trembling, removes his shoes. And the Lord then reveals himself, his calling and promises to his servant Moses. In a similar way, this theophany to Abram was an appearance of God himself in tangible form. Note uh, Genesis 9, 7 through 8, um, right after this appearing, the altar is erected, the first one, by Abram at the Oak of Morah. He set his first altar there, as the record uh, reveals in Scripture. Shortly after, verse 8 follows him south between Bethel and Ai, where he builds a second altar, calling upon the name of the Lord. This act... This altar building, this act of submission and worship was modeled for him by Noah centuries before. You guys remember as Noah gets off the ark and he, is in, he has inherited a new land, a new world. He is now the dominion agent, he and his family, of a second earth almost. You could think of it that way. And so what does Noah do at this juncture? He builds the first, as I know of, recorded altar in Scripture and worships the Lord, and the Lord comes to him, visits him there, and yes, makes covenant promises. So Noah had responded in similar manner upon receiving salvation of the Lord through the great flood. So these are a few examples which teach us the following. Altars come to be associated with several things through the course of Scripture. If you have a copy of your notes, these are in a list in that introductory paragraph. Note among them. So things associated with altars. Sacrifice, worship, priestly mediation, a priest interceding on behalf of the people with God, thanksgiving, you could add prophecy, offerings, atonement, special revelation, memorial, and proclamation. Quite the list. We won't touch upon them all, but let's focus on two, memorial and proclamation. It is these last two purposes which move Isaiah, I submit to you, to visit the altar of Abram in his declaring to Israel, and his declarations to Israel in Isaiah 50 and 51, a memorial and a proclamation. Remember where you came from, the rock from which you were hewn, the quarry from which you were dug, and then there's a proclamation of the meaning and the implications of that significant moment in Abram's life. In so doing, he recalls and proclaims the signal events in Abram's beginning in Genesis 12, and he prophesies of their meaning to his own generation. He is one example in Scripture of the value of sanctified memory and the purpose of Abram's altar in the first place. So I think it's appropriate for us to revisit Abram's altar following the example of Isaiah, that is, to remember and to proclaim what God has done all the way back to the origin story of every true believer who the Bible goes on to describe as a son or daughter of Abraham. The charge is similar for us, in other words. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to the work of God. This is why, in part, the Bible is so long, so many pages. It's so we can actually look to the rock from which we were hewn and the quarry from which we were dug. And so let us do so this morning. Note by way of heading, at the altar of Abram or Abraham, 
we have the following. At the altar of Abraham, self-help salvation is condemned. Self-help salvation is condemned at the altar of Abraham. Think of last week's message. The primary theme was Abram versus Babel. Babel representing self-help salvation, one expression of it. And then Abram representing sovereign grace, sovereign salvation. Secondly, at the altar of Abram, birth is celebrated. There is a miraculous fulfillment of the promise through lineage. Thirdly, at the altar of Abram, fruitfulness is realized. Fruitfulness is realized. And finally, at the altar of Abram, an empire or a kingdom is established. These are four uh, aspects of Abraham's moment of calling in Genesis 12 that Isaiah highlights today, among other things. But let us begin here. First of all, at the altar of Abram, self-help salvation is condemned. Turn back to our primary text, Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11. Notice what the prophet says. He says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Mark that there, that question, the voice of his servant. I'll ask you who that is a little later. But then he says, of another group of people, that is to say, those who do not listen to the voice of the Lord's servant, uh, this is 10b, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Then verse 11 gets more to the contrast. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand you shall lie down in torment. So here we have two views of illumination, two ideas of illumination. On the one side, we have the light of the world promised through the voice of the servant. On the other hand, we have fire kindled torches that are lit by our own strength. We have self-styled salvation versus the light of the world through whoever this servant is. At the altar of Abram, these things are evident. In Genesis 12, just to remind you, we noted last week especially how the calling of Abraham is juxtaposed. That is, two things set beside each other to illustrate a context. It's, set, it's juxtaposed against the program of Babel. In Babel, we noted many contrasts, but in Babel, the people said to one another, let us make bricks and let us build a city and a tower but what was their primary motive? They were afraid of being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They were afraid that their name would be extinguished and insignificant. They wanted to preserve their future, their own renown, their own salvation, as it were, through this effort, this enterprise. And this is not only the case in Babel. You think after the Tower of Babel, that project collapsed. Then the Babel impulse died with it? No. Uh, the Babel impulse is as old and as enduring as the sin of man's heart condition is. Testimony to this fact were two cities that Abraham lived in. Of course, Babel has long since fallen, but Abraham found himself in a city called Ur. And Ur was discovered, and I can't remember the historical details right now, but a famous archaeologist a couple centuries ago or less found the city of Ur, and wouldn't you know, right in the middle of it, guess what was there? Kids, guess what was in the center of Ur? A house. There were many houses, there's a kind of temple. Does anyone know? Can anyone guess what was in the center of Ur? Um, yeah, not exactly. These were bad guys. These were false worshipers, idol worshipers. 
There was, in fact, a tower. Kind of like that. It was, you could say, the Tower of Ur, perhaps. In the middle of Ur, there was this ziggurat building. It was a structure. It was a tower. And then the houses and the harbor that sat on the Euphrates, they surrounded that place of importance. And we can assume that if Haran didn't have a tower, it had similar ideas that galvanized or that uh, gave unity for this civilization. Why? Because man in his fallenness knows that he's in trouble, but in his sin, he is wont to deny the only way of salvation. There was a promise at the time of the building of Ur and Haran that the seed of the woman would hold out hope for a head, uh, for a, a serpent crushing figure, a son, a significant son who would come. But the people did not believe or set their faith according to the promises to Adam and Eve, their forebears, nor to the word of God that came to Abraham. They stayed in their city and enjoyed its uh, wealth and produce. Thank you. But Abraham was a man of a different sort. God granted him the gift of faith. He left the cities that were marked by self-styled salvation attempts, self-help, security endeavors. He left Ur, he left Haran, and he began to walk towards a land that God had yet to reveal, an undisclosed, promised location. So next, we recall in the, at the altar of Abram an incident that will come in the future if Babel represents a collective approach or a collective means to secure our own salvation. Abraham himself fell prey to temptation to secure promises through his own individual attempts at self-help. And this, of course, takes shape in the story of Ishmael in Genesis 16. At the, that is to say, in summary, at the altar of Abram, we remember that God's salvation comes God's way in his time by miraculous event, and there is no way that we can add to it, modify, or substitute anything else. In short, salvation is by grace through faith alone in the significant Son to come. This was the gospel. It was the gospel, the same gospel that we preach, proclaim, and believe today was the same gospel to Abraham. However, in more seed form, and not all of its fullness revealed as we know it in Christ, nevertheless, this was the message. There is no self-help salvation. The altar of Abram recognizes as much. He built an altar after the Lord had accomplished a mighty work by visiting him in a theophany. The altar itself did not represent building a big, impressive structure so that God would meet earth. No, it remembered and it proclaimed God condescending, reaching low, interacting with man, establishing communion with him, making himself known, his word, and even in some form, available to Abraham. And so in light of this, Abram builds his altar. Now this is in contrast, these self-help salvation attempts to the servant's voice, as I mentioned before. Isaiah 50 verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Young people, can you guess who the servant of the Lord is in Isaiah? This figure is often called the suffering servant. When Isaiah prophesies of a suffering servant, who is he speaking of, young people? That is correct, Knox. You hit it on the money. This is Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 50, verse 6, and see if this doesn't ring a bell. I gave my back. This is the servant speaking in first person language. 
I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Who is this? Whose back was bruised and crushed for our iniquities? That's correct. Whose blood was shed for the remission of our sins? Whose face was spit upon? Who was mocked and made fun of that we might be saved? Very good. Thank you, young people. Those answers are correct. This is the voice of the servant. And do you see the contrast now? Let him who fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Reliance on God means trusting that a suffering servant will somehow, some way, be the light of the world. Such that in the future, this messianic figure who suffers on our behalf for our sins would shine light so that we would no longer walk in darkness, depravity, and sinful condemnation and hell-bent life of breaking God's law with no hope of redemption, but instead that we would find that the voice of the servant speaking to us, follow me, and we would look to him and look to his sacrifice as a payment for our sins and find in him the light of the world. But on the other side of things, woe to those, the prophet says, who kindle their own fire, who equip themselves with burning torches, who walk uh, by uh, torches that they have kindled. The Lord says in judgment, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Very relevant text for us today. Uh, Saints of God, listen to me. In this day and age, the chickens, so to speak, are coming home to roost Our culture is realizing how vapid, how empty, and uh, secularism is. The promises of denying the existence of God, the so-called libertine freedoms that an atheistic worldview could gain us, these things are turning sour on our lips. The taste of gravel is in our mouth as we realize that neither a life or a society can be built on something that doesn't have a firm foundation. And so men are lost today, and they're crying out for hope and for salvation. The only voice that holds out hope is the voice of the suffering and now triumphant servant, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled Isaiah 50. But mark my words, there are many and there will be many Babel pretenders who will hold out good sounding and persuasively you know, tantalizing self-help programs for us to better our own life. I've, li- I've listened, you know, a little bit to some of these voices of culture, and from what I gather, many saying, we need to live as if there is a God. Uh, good values can be found in a certain cultural Christianity. And these can be uh, encouraging at first because we see, does this represent a sort of turning back? It may represent hearts ripened unto the harvest of salvation. But there is no abstract concept of God that ultimately yields any fruit until you bow in faith and repentance before the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the voice of hope and salvation, and there are no imitations. And in in this day and age, I encourage you, do not settle for less in your own confidence and in your own proclamation for a form of godliness that denies the power of the suffering and now victorious servant, Jesus Christ. 
As we visit the altar of Abram, this is what we learn. The Babel impulse is always out there to provide an alternative hope for the future. But there is only hope in the God that visited Abraham. There's only hope through his promise. Remember Genesis 12, it says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the fulfillment of that language we call union with Christ. That is to say, in the line of the significant sons is hope for salvation. In Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, and only in him will the families of earth be blessed. Even more particularly, more specifically, the Lord says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, meaning that blessing and judgment are mediated through one significant son. Abraham prefigured him, Jesus fulfilled him. Those who know Jesus will be blessed. Those who turn, who reject Jesus will be cursed because all blessing and all judgment is mediated through one man. This is obvious as we go back and visit the altar of Abraham that self-help salvation is condemned, but there is salvation in the significant son to come and who has come for us. Secondly, and more quickly, at the altar of Abram, we find birth is celebrated. Notice 51, 1 and 2. Look to Abraham, your father, Isaiah admonishes the people. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. He's using specific paternal language. Look to your parents. Honor your parents, you could say, in the spiritual sense. Look to Abram, Abraham, look to Sarah who bore you. And it goes on. For he was but one when I called him. And now the prophet adopts the first person language God is speaking now. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. There's something of an altar call, if you will, in this language. Revisit the altar of Abram, of Abraham, the prophet is saying. As we've noted already, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Take note of God's work through covenant history. See the quarry from which you were dug, and when you go there, when you visit that work of the Lord in the past, what will you find? You'll find that you are a descendant, if you are a covenant child, of Abraham and Sarah. This is why the New Testament, Galatians 3, Romans, over and again declares that if you are a believer, you are grafted into Abraham. Remember, blessing and curse mediated through this promised line. And because you are a son or daughter of Abraham, you can heed the counsel of the prophet. By looking back, by visiting the altar that Abraham built, so to speak, and looking to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you. And as we do so, as we pay heed to that altar call, what do we see? We see a pair of forebearers, a mother and a father, who had faith in the word of the Lord. There is a generational heritage of the elect line that goes back to Abraham and to Sarai that required an absolute miracle for it to continue. This speaks to us, these significant, uh, this significant mother and important father speaks to us of gospel terms, does it not? The Lord uses family relationships through history to bring even his son into the world. That is to say, we now, with the vantage point of post-incarnate history, looking back to when Jesus came, we can look to the quarry from which we were dug by considering a virgin birth. Isaiah himself prophesied that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And just like Sarai, Sarah of old, a miraculous birth event took place that 
ushered in the incarnation. Again, the event that Isaiah prophesied of Emmanuel, God with us. And so we can look to this quarry, as it were, Jesus Christ conceived in the womb of Mary. And the womb of the virgin thus became the vehicle for the incarnation. This was not the only miraculous birth incident in the line of covenant history. But we have another one as we look back to even further to Abraham and Sarai, Sarah. We look back to Elizabeth and a miraculous birth that brought John the Baptist, who prefigured in fulfillment of the end of Malachi, the one who would prepare the way for, in the words of Isaiah, the suffering servant to come, so on and so forth. And even more than this, we look to a miraculous birth when we remember our own new birth. You and I are born again if you are a believer today. And this is a birth not of natural means, not of water. Do you remember Nicodemus? He asks of Jesus, what must I do to be born again, basically? Do I have to crawl back into my mother's womb and and, uh, go through the birth canal a second time? Jesus says, no, this is not. Uh, It's difficult to describe in natural terms because this is a supernatural event. And Jesus says that unless a man is born again in this way, regeneration, new birth, fundamental transformation, becoming a new person by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's evidenced by faith. It's evidenced by conversion. But it begins when there's that fundamental, miraculous moment of calling into new life that which was dead in sin. And thus we have, as we visit the altar of Abram, birth that is celebrated. It's an altar call, if you will, to go back and to see how God has worked through history. There are a number of stones through history um, that are associated with the immovable and foundational work of the Lord. And so it stands to reason that Isaiah would call our attention to a rock or a quarry as an analogy. As we look back, we can see these moments where God is carving out his will and purposes from the raw material of history. And as we see them, we mark them even in stones themselves, the Ten Commandments came on stone, delivered to the prophet Moses, which revealed in special revelation by the very finger of God, the word of God for his people, yes, even for us. We see the stone in the wilderness at Meribah and Massa, which was struck by the staff of the servant Moses, and it sprang forth into rivers of living water. We see Jesus identified with these moments as he's called the rock. We see Moses introducing Uh, the Lord to his people as the rock. We see Jesus as a rock of offense, a cornerstone of foundation and a stone of stumbling. All of these pictures are ways and analogies, descriptive language to remind us in a sort of altar call form to revisit the significant works of God all through history that Abraham and Sarah and others point to. So at the altar of Abram, we have self-help salvation condemned. We have birth that is celebrated. And thirdly, we have fruitfulness that is realized. And this is emphasized in verse 3 of Isaiah 51. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Here we see hope restored in this descriptive language that Isaiah deploys as he is speaking prophetically as God is using him as his mouthpiece, if you will. 
there's hope that is restored in the promises of God's covenant. This, comes, this is described by way of comfort. The Lord will comfort Zion. He comforts all her waste places. That which is a desolate wilderness under the groanings of a fallen world, it will be comforted. As a wilderness receives the comfort of warm rain and then bursts forth as if by miracle into springtime life again, so it is in history when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. We see this at Pentecost. When the comforter which was promised by the Lord comes and visits and is evident in those flames of fire and multiple languages spoken by that first wave of followers and disciples as they went in uh, and as they went out to declare the hope of Christ now come, we see Isaiah's words fulfilled. It is the Lord who comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden. This comfort is not the only word that speaks to the consoling thought of the Lord's promises, but also joy and gladness. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Zion, speaking of a place that represents the people of God. This is the place of restored communion and habitation where a holy God is in sweet friendship with his own. And in this place, there is comfort, there is joy and gladness. There's thanksgiving and the voice of song. As we gather in this place, it's a little picture of Zion. It's a little piece of Zion, if you will. We gather and we hear the scriptures comfort us as they are proclaimed. We comfort our souls in prayer, knowing that we have an advocate, Christ, a mediator before the Father in our behalf. We raise our voices in worship and song and joy and uh, gladness and voices of thanksgiving because we revisit the work of the Lord on our behalf and we find that just like he was faithful to his covenant with Abraham, so he has called us, us out of darkness unto the promised land of heaven one day, yea, new heavens and new earth. And so for us, fruitfulness is realized in the promises of salvation. Hope is restored Eden is replanted. Make all, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. The fact that Eden was lost due to Adam and Eve's sin was such a despairing thought. But the promise that there yet remains a tree of life. Remember the tree of life was in the center of the Garden of Eden? That's sort of this mysterious figure of God, that uh, witnesses to God's promises for an eschatological glory, a future orientation where mankind's uh, communion with the Lord increases uh, stage by stage unto glory. And Adam failed in his probation or testing unto that end. But there is a second Adam who will succeed, who has succeeded. That second Adam is Jesus Christ. And so it is no surprise then that John the Revelator so to speak, uses the imagery of the tree of life. And we see that tree of life yet exists. Eden has been replanted, if you will. Eden yet flourishes in the future for those who are in Christ because he, where Adam failed, is the successful second Adam, ushering us one day into what the garden held out hope for originally and so much more. And so we have fruitfulness realized. We also have dominion reestablished. In Eden, you remember the vocation calling that Adam was given. He was called to take care of the world, to steward it well. We read of this in our Genesis series already, of course, in Genesis 1, 28. 
Also, this dominion mandate is reinstated in Noah's case after the flood in Genesis 9.17. But this dominion mandate seems to fall on hard times. Where will the fruitfulness be? Remember, the command was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This dominion mandate and this calling vocation of man seem to hang in the balance from our perspective in the case of Abram and Sarah. Would fruitfulness die in this generation? After all, Sarai was barren. She could not have a child. When the Lord first visited Abram, he was 75 years old. When the Lord finally gave them a son, that treasured firstborn, they're both like around 100, as I recall. So that's a long time to wait. That's very old to bear, bear a child. But in the promise of Isaac, fulfilled to Abraham and Sarah, we have the dominion call reinstated. We have fruitfulness realized. We have the ability by God's sovereign hand for Abraham to be fruitful, spiritually especially, and to multiply and fill the earth. Because the Lord told him, I'll make of you a great nation. And uh, young people, question for you. God told Abraham he would have many, many kids. And he told him to look outside and his kids would be what? As many as stars in the heaven. God told Abraham to consider the beach. And he said, you will have as many kids as? Remember, consider the beach. You'll have as many kids as? Grains of the sand of the beach. That's exactly right. And this was the image by way of promise that the Lord gave to Abraham. And as we go back to the altar of Abram, if you will, we see where as far as man's perspective is concerned, where all hope was lost, dominion was reinstated, fruitfulness was realized when the promise finally came true. And this was a miraculous sovereign pregnancy event, just like Jesus was a miraculous, his incarnation, sovereign pregnancy event. And so this is the quarry and the rock from which we are hewn. Final point this morning. At the altar of Abram, we find not just self-help, salvation condemned, and the salvation of the suffering servant proclaimed, but we have his, a birth is celebrated, fruitfulness is realized, and finally an empire, or in Jesus' words, a kingdom is established. I use the term empire because it means a kingdom of kingdoms. And that is, in modern terms, perhaps the best word to describe the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is an empire greater than any that's preceded it and will swallow, swallow all others up. All others will become a footstool for his feet as he declares his crown rights over all history, over all the world, over all powers, nations, peoples, principalities, authorities, and so forth. So let's go back to Isaiah 51.4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Again, we've talked about light already, the voice of the servant. The voice of the servant comes not just in his supply of his own body as propitiatory payment for our sins, but the voice of the servant also takes the form of the declaration of righteousness, his law and his rule. And that goes forth from him. And he sets in that his standards of justice, which are absolute and will not be challenged. He says, I set my justice for a light to the peoples. Verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. Arms referring to the active strength of the ruler. 
the coastlands hope for me. Mark that phrase. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So we go back to the quarry from which we were dug, from the rock from which we are hewn, and what do we realize? At the altar of Abram, an empire is established. I will make of you a great nation, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This empire takes the form of the law of God going forth. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. This is the light of the law that Isaiah proclaims. Do we consider the law in such terms? The law is the revelation of God's righteousness. It reveals to us His character, the standards of perfection that He demands, the only sure foundation upon which to build a life, the only sure bedrock upon which to build a nation, a civilization, indeed an empire. And so He is building His own upon this foundation. Too often, more often than not, In this day and age, people who like to build things despise the law of God. They look to the light of this author over here, of that philosopher over there, of this Greco-Roman tradition over here, of this historical, you know, hero that they have in their mind over there, this elevated false God uh, here, there, and everywhere. The voices in the wind tell us that there is light apart from the law of God. This is deception of the highest order. There is no righteousness, no justice, no light. There is no standard, no objective measure of right and wrong and ethics independent of the whole counsel of God's word, independent of his law, which is his unchangeable nature and character proclaimed through his system of rule and order that he has prescribed over all the cosmos from the beginning to the end. And there is no appeal process. There will be no amendments to his constitution. There will be no cultural accommodations that are made because we demand different standards today than were demanded in the old days, of the Old Testament, New Testament, so on and so forth. And when we realize this, we will stumble into the light and we will begin to find our bearings. We will begin to have sure footing underneath us and we will see the kingdom Uh, fundamentals of the Lord's empire unveiled before us. This is what the coastlands wait for. What are the coastlands? Who remembers the little pop quiz? I've been asking you kids this almost weekly. We're talking about the legacy of Noah's son. So let's just go over it by way of review. We have uh, Shem and the... Shem and the significant sons. Then we have Ham and the... City builders. And then finally, we have Japheth and the? Japheth and the? Coastlands. That's correct. So we have a reference to coastlands in our text here. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. As the Lord's empire is established, the fulfillment of Noah's prophecy over Japheth is coming true. Remember Genesis 9.27, Genesis 10.5, Japheth is in view. And the legacy of 
Japheth was such that his people went the furthest. They tended to go to the corners of the earth after the Babel dispersion. Tower of Babel collapses, languages are confused, and then the nations go to the respective areas. And Japheth went the farthest. Thus, the legacy of Japheth represents the outlying regions, the Gentiles, if you were, those who are furthest geographically removed from the covenant work of God in national, theocratic, Old Testament Israel. But there is a prophecy all the way back at the altar of Abram, if you will, that all families of the earth would be blessed. This prophecy is reiterated and expanded by Isaiah when he says, the coastlands hope for me. There is a thirst burning in the souls of the distant lands. You and I are testimony to it being satisfied in Christ, wherein Gentiles hear the word of God. And though they may not have any cultural familiarity with the ancient Hebrews, though they may be straight up pagans sacrificing their kids and worshiping things carved out of wood and stone, when they repent and believe, they are reconnecting with that innate sense of the image of God that they still bear in part, the repenting of their sin, and they are finding light in the strong arm of the Messiah's law as it goes forth as a light to the nations. And as we remarked last week, the gospel goes forth as law and good news. The light that shows us our sin, the law, and then repentance and faith offered in Jesus Christ. The coastlands hope, they thirst, they long for this message. There are hearts prepared unto salvation. There are fields ripe unto harvest that the Lord works through the course of history to draw into his sheepfold, if you will, into his empire, the tents of Japheth, into the tents of Shem, the line of the significant sons, where they will find unity, cohabitation, if you will, in the place, the sanctuary, the future promised for God's own. An empire is established, the altar of Abram. A light of the law goes forth. A Gentile harvest will be reaped and eternal salvation is proclaimed finally this morning. Note verse 6 in closing. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Again, as we go back to the rock from which we're hewn, if God can preserve the line of the Messiah when it was down to two people, one couple that was infertile, if he could preserve the line of the Messiah when it was threatened to that degree and they're like 100 years old, will he not preserve his promises unto us who now join in praising and worshiping him at the altar of Abram, if you will, along with so many sons. By this point, it's too many to count, and you better believe more are coming in as the gospel is proclaimed and as hearts are being born again, as the lost and the coastlands cry out for hope in the Messiah. Praise the Lord. His salvation will be forever, and His righteousness will never be dismayed. Just like Abraham and Sarai they grew old and died, yet the promise remained through their seed. There would be one, the promise came to David, who would never die. In fact, of his kingdom, of his empire, it is said that there will be one who will sit on its throne forever. And this one is Jesus Christ. We've spoken of him time and again in this series as the significant son. His empire is expanding. His kingdom is advancing. His church is victorious. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. His salvation is forever. His righteousness will never be dismayed. And even though this earth will vanish and wear out like a garment, the heavens may vanish like smoke. That is, the material realm holds out no eternal hope in and of itself. However, redemption, hope in Jesus Christ, is a forever thing. At Abram's altar, in closing this morning, we remember the covenant promise of salvation is conditional upon the miraculous Grace and greatness of Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? Even his name means covenant keeper. I am that I am, the self-contained one who will always establish that which he promises without exception. He is Yahweh, the self-sufficient, covenant-keeping and fulfilling Lord of lords, reconciling us to himself through himself in Jesus Christ. This morning, saints, and even the lost within the hearing of this a message. If you find yourself wandering in the coastlands of unbelief, hear the voice of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Hear the voice of the resurrected and ascended, now ruling, reigning, triumphant servant, Jesus Christ. Hear the message from Abram's altar. Repent and turn to Christ and live. His salvation is eternal. Praise his holy name. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message in your holy scripture that gives us hope, yes, even this day. And as your plans have been unveiled and marched through the course of your decree, taking shape in time, we have only more reason to be comforted, to express our joy, our worship, in songs of gladness and joy unto you. You have truly, Lord, done a marvelous work. A miraculous new birth has taken place in the hearts of every believer here. I pray that we would hold these things precious. Turn our attention, Lord, to your mighty works through history, through your scriptures, even as we have visited them, so to speak, at the altar of Abraham today. And I pray that these means would only strengthen us, would only firmly, more firmly give us the resolve that is needful if there's any pressure or persecution that faces us in the near future. We pray that we would be found faithful upon your return or when you call us home, echoing these words that have preceded us, that hope and salvation comes through Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.